which is the new host. T. Hetzel will be taking you through the summer and I believe on into the fall. And this is my last show. I'm retiring and signing off. So I'd like to thank uh, you, our listeners, for joining us these last couple of years when I've been hosting the show. And I'd like to put out a really big, humongous thank you to Chaz Barrett, our engineer. Chaz really is the show. He's the man behind the glass, but he is the show. So thanks to Chaz Barrett. And um, thanks to Rachel Harkai, who has a couple of more shows before she also takes off for the summer. And thank you and welcome to T. Hetzel. Please join us for The Living Writer Show today, Sherman Alexi and T. Hetzel. <laughs> Good afternoon. Um, I'm T. Hetzel, and I'm sitting here today with uh, my guest, Sherman Alexi, on The Living Writers Show. Uh, very, very happy to have you here today, Sherman. Um, I'll start with a brief introduction, and then we'll get right to it. Um, Sherman's in town here in Ann Arbor to read uh, at the Neutral Zone uh, from his latest novel, Flight. Um, he was born in October 1966, uh, Spokane, Coeur d'Alene Indian. He grew up on the Spokane Indian Reservation. Um, Sherman has won so many awards and fellowships that I won't list them all here, but suffice it to say that he, he's got an NEA fellowship uh, under his uh, uh belt. <laughs> that was that was 16 years ago. <laughs> well, I'm starting out early in your but then he's won everything else since. I mean, quite honestly. Yeah. So, and uh, and he's been the the world uh, poetry bout champion and held that title for 4 years. So, um, he's just done everything filmmaker, uh, smoke signals and the business of fancy dancing. Um, so we're so lucky to have him here today with us. Um, so Sherman, welcome. Uh, thank you. It's good to be here and to you know be here with a homegirl. So you know, <laughs> traveling gets lonely. So you know, I, I can I can feel the Seattle on you. So. Uh, <laughs> thank you. I'm glad it hasn't worn off. <laughs> no, not yet. Yeah, not that Ann Arbor isn't wonderful. <laughs> yes. So. Um, well, will you? Would you like to start off by telling us a little bit about your latest novel, Flight, and? Uh, maybe giving us a, a short reading, and then we'll get to the talking. That'd be great. Uh, it's called Flight. It's uh, from Black Cat, paperback original, my, my publisher, Grove Atlantic. And uh, it's about a time-traveling teenager uh, named, well, you'll hear, named Zitz, <laughs> who uh, becomes unstuck in time like Billy Pilgrim does in Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. So I send a prayer out into the air for Kurt Vonnegut, too, who died this week. Yes. And I'd spent so much of the last year and a half writing the book and then the last month doing publicity talking about Kurt Vonnegut. So the other oh. morning I came downstairs and my wife had said Kurt Vonnegut died, which, you know, every conversation for a week had been had about involved him. him. Yeah, because uh, my editor, Morgan Entrican, edited Slaughterhouse-Five when he was a puppy. So... Uh, oh. I'd been getting some mixed reviews of my book. So Morgan called me to give me a pep talk and said, well, you know, you should read the New York Times book review review of Slaughterhouse-Five. So I got online and I looked at it, and the condescension was amazing. You, you mean, so back when that was released, it, it was, was just... The, yeah, the New York Times pretty much mocked it. Uh, it mocked <laughs> its sci-fi, fantasy elements, and its moralism. The fact that it's a very... And and, right, and the combination of sci-fi fantasy and moral tale, was, was, they mocked, which 
is what I wrote. So I'm sure the New York Times bookery is going to be mocking me very soon. You know, well, they better not. Well, the LA Times has mocked me. Rocky Mountain News has mocked me. Seattle Times has mocked me. Seattle Weekly has mocked me, and and a bunch of great reviews too. So it's yes, been mixed. Yeah. So. Uh, but people have a hard time with a moral tale, I think. Right, right. Well, I think we need a few more of them. Yeah, so, so that's maybe. what I tried to write. So here's the beginning of it. That sounds great. I love your opening lines in the beginning of chapter two, too. Oh, Phenomenal. Thanks. Call me Zitz. Everybody calls me Zitz. That's not my real name, of course. My real name isn't important. This morning I wake in a room I do not recognize. I often wake in strange rooms. It's what I do. The alarm clock beeps at me. I know I didn't set that thing. I always set alarm clocks to play wake-up music, something good like the White Stripes or PJ Harvey or Yeah, Yeah, Yeah or Kanye West. Something to start your brain, cook your guts, and get you angry and horny at the same time. Sometimes I wake to my mother's favorite music, like Marvin Gaye or Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Yes, there used to be a band called Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Isn't that the most amazing name for a rock band you ever heard? When it comes right down to it, everything in the world is about blood, sweat, and tears, so that name is perfect. No, it's almost perfect. The perfect name would be blood, swears, the perfect name would be blood sweat, tears, and cum, but I wonder if people would buy a CD by a band name so graphically. All of the guys in blood, sweat, and tears had long stringy hair and greasy beards and bloodshot eyes. They were ugly. Back in the 70s, all of the rock stars were ugly. And they were great musicians. Do ugly guys compensate for their ugliness by becoming great guitar players? Or do certain guitars choose their homely players like Excalibur chose Lance a lot? I wish I lived back in the 70s. As ugly as I am, I might have been the biggest rock star in the world. I love blood, sweat, and tears because they're ugly and because they rock hard and because they were my mother's favorite rock band. Her favorite song was the one called I Love You More Than You'll Ever Know. She used to sing that to me when I was a baby. I remember her singing it to me. I know I'm not supposed to remember it, but I do. My memory is strange that way. I often remember people I've never met and events and places I've never seen. I don't think I'm some mystical bastard. I just think I pay attention to the details. Thank you. Thank you, Sherman. So that's the first couple pages. And uh, he ends up meeting up with this uh, crazy kid named Justice who convinces Zitz to become a vigilante. And he ends up walking into a bank with a gun and starts shooting people, uh, gets shot in the head, and then becomes unstuck in time and travels to various violent times in American history uh, before he ends up back in himself later on. So... It's a weird little book. How many of those times did you write, Sherman, like within within the story when you were writing it? And did, did any of them drop out or did the ones that you focused on stay? Well, it started in... off, the book didn't start off with the Slaughterhouse-Five influence at all. I wasn't even thinking about that. But uh, it started off a couple 9-11s ago. It's funny how we talk about it. A couple 9-11s ago. Uh, yeah. I was watching a documentary and they interviewed one of the flight instructors who taught the guys how to fly. Mm -hmm. And as I was watching it, I thought, I've never seen anybody even talk about these guys in a personal way, the, the, the flight instructors. I've never seen their faces. No. So I was watching it stunned by the fact that this guy was actually talking to a camera about this. And the and thing marking that, himself yes, as the person who taught. The, the, the amazing thing was he kept, you know, not only could he talk about the epic crime that occurred that day, but he kept saying things like, well, 
you know, he, this guy and I, these guys and I would talk about our families and they would come to my apartment here and we would drink and tell stories and, and sing. And sometimes he'd be too drunk to drive, so he'd sleep on my couch, you know. And, and so the sense of personal betrayal was just as huge as, as the epic crime of bringing down the towers. So the right. juxtaposition of those things, I had to write about it. So I invented a flight instructor for a different terrorist. Mm-hmm. And I wrote as a short story, how would it feel to have been the one who taught a terrorist how to fly? And then I, I juxtaposed that against another kind of betrayal, mm-hmm. uh, being a, you know, an adult or a spouse, and how that would make you feel in context. But it was just a short story. But that was that was then that was the genesis of what became this longer. That became this novel. Flight. That was the beginning. Okay. The idea of 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 morality and crimes and betrayals and the various levels they exist at, and and then I just started thinking, well, what other right. parts of American history have people's stories that haven't been told, or mm. things that haven't been said, and big betrayals, and big betrayals, like the, where you first have him uh, when where's it's. First lands, basically. First lands uh, during seventies political activism. <laughs> right. <laughs> my fictional version of uh, the American Indian Movement. My version is called Indigenous Rights Now. You know, which doesn't have the O in it, so it's not really an acronym. But they call themselves Iron. But I thought that would be quite the Indian thing to do to have an acronym without the vowel. You know. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, we're a little incompetent about our vowels, and. Uh, no way. Uh, so, and what happens in that story is Zitz, the Indian kid, drops into the body of a white FBI agent mm-hmm. as they go about executing an Indian activist with the help of other Indian activists. Uh, and that came about, and, you know, I'm sure this is a, you know, I know this is a commie lefty bastard radio station, <laughs> so I know I'm going to offend a lot of people who are listening, but that came to me because of the whole free Leonard Peltier movement, mm-hmm. uh, okay. which I reflexively supported. <laughs> me too. Uh, until I actually found out what happened that day. I never bothered to investigate myself what happened that day. And what happened that day is two FBI agents pulled up at the Jumping Bull compound, and I have no problem believing they shot first. I have absolutely no problem (laughs) believing the FBI pulled the trigger first. And then there was a firefight, uh, and the FBI agents were mortally wounded and ended up on the ground defenseless. And one, two, or three AIM guys walked down the hill stood over the FBI agents who were defenseless and shot them in the face. So, okay. So, you know. And, that's, and that was Leonard Peltier then? So uh, they, I don't know if he was one of the three. people who walked okay. down the hill. See, I never investigated that either. I don't know if he was one oh. of the guys who walked down the hill, but he knows who walked down the hill. Right. Uh, so even if you call it war, what was happening on Pine Ridge at that time, and, and you can call it war, a yes. political war, what happened in the aftermath of that gun battle was a war crime. So killing defenseless soldiers, Mm -hmm. killing defenseless enemies is a war crime. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a legal crime, uh, whether it was murder or whether it was, you know, an act of violence, a a criminal act during war, it is still wrong. Right, right. Uh, And you have many of these war crimes surface in your, your novel as well. That's part of the betrayal and the revenge 
uh, aspect that's present almost in every story yeah, that and, you show and, us. And Zitz talks about you know the way in which whatever body he drops into, whatever side of whatever war he's on, they all say the same things in order to justify their violence. Exactly. And there's this great line in the book where you, you have Zitz saying that Art, who's one of the, the FBI agents, and Justice, who uh, he meets while he's in jail, Art and Justice say the same things. It's yes. like a kind of a lovely moment. <laughs> <laughs> Very deep, Sherman. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, see how much an idiot I am? It never even occurred to me. It never even occurred to me that I named Art Art. Really? No. It never even, I never even, oh, God, that's so, oh, man. Oh, no. Oh, man. See, that's what you get. You're, t- you're getting an MFA program. They're that's te- right. They're teaching they teach you how to stuff. read. Subtext. Maybe way too closely, uh, right? Know, I am shallow. I only operate on the surface, so. No. Oh, wait. Um, well, well, let's, so, so speaking about violence then, um, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, how much time we have right now, but I'll just, we'll keep talking. Um, this is her first interview folks, so be gentle with her. <laughs> That's right. Listen gently Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or with a safe distance away from your radio dial. Um, well, well, Sherman and I were speaking right before we we got on the air uh, about the sad events at Virginia Tech, and 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 for me, strangely, reading Sherman's book with with the violence uh, always present, um, I I was I was um, I'm not sure the background story about. The, the shooters at this time, but uh, it kept, when I was reading, you never really know where these people have come from and um, and and the loneliness that you speak about that Zitz has because of all the, the horrible things that have, uh, have happened in his life and as he's being tossed from his aunt's home to foster homes. Um, and, and just this this question of violence. And is it ever, in the book, you pose very large questions. Is it, is it ever right to kill someone in self-defense and... Um, I don't know. I'm going to stop talking now because we are not here to well, <laughs> hear I, my ramblings. <laughs> here to hear my ramblings. Yes, we are. Uh, well, I, I don't. I, I don't know if it's ever right to kill anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I do know, and I talk about it when I'm traveling. Now, I do know that if somebody stood up on an airplane with a box cutter and I was on the flight, I would kill them and eat their kidney. Right. Uh, I, I know that now. I wouldn't have said that before 9/11. Mm-hmm. I would have said, you know, I was a pacifist. Mm-hmm. I was a gentle person. But mm-hmm. no, that's not true at all. Somebody stands up on my airplane and tries to hijack the thing, I'm going to kill them. And a lot of people are going to help me and we're going to tear them bit from bit. You know, it'll be me and 19 salesmen. It'll be me and all the Willie Lomans and Lomanettes of the world eating a terrorist on flight 12 from Detroit to Chicago or something. So uh, I don't know. And, And with the Virginia Tech stuff, what really angered me you know, certainly the dats just, just you know, fill me with grief and sadness and, and questions. But in watching yes. the talking heads talk about it on, on, on the TV and trying to explain it or trying to assign blame, you know, you've got the left blaming the Second Amendment and you've got the right blaming Hollywood. And then you've got bipartisan people blaming the Second Amendment and Hollywood. And, and uh, none of them talking about the actual fact that it was a crazed young man who had no, had been taught no positive, healthy way to express emotion. This was, a, whoever this is, as a severely damaged person. Right. And you couldn't have stopped it. It's not the fault of Hollywood. It's not the fault of guns. It's not the fault of, of, of campus security. Mm-hmm. There was nothing you could have done. And, and I was talking to 
uh, the college president where I was at last night mm. in, in Virginia. I was in Virginia. Oh. Uh, and, and he said he'd gotten, you know, like 50 phone calls that day from parents worried about his campus's security. And, right. and I said, well, what did you say to him? And he goes, well, I didn't say a lot because <laughs> there's not much to say. But what I wanted to say to them is we can't lock every door. No. And, and so. And you can't put in huge speakers all over campus to say, you know, over in the North yeah. Campus right now. A guy with yeah. a gun. A yeah. guy with a gun. <laughs> Wrong. Uh, yeah. So uh, we rely on the kindness of strangers constantly, every day, moment by moment. And sometimes they betray us. And Sherman, uh, with that, we're going to go to break and we'll be right back. Thanks. One, two, three. We're, we're back again here with Sherman Alexi. Um, so, so now we're gonna we're gonna get back to talking about his latest novel, Flight. Um, Sherman, how was it? How was the writing of the book? We started to talk about that a, a few moments ago. Well, it was interesting because I, I hadn't even thought I'd be writing this book at all. I didn't you know? It was never a plan because I had signed a book deal to write young adult novels. 
two young adult novels, and a picture book. So I started working on the first young adult novel, which is coming out this fall from Little Brown. And In September, yes, right? Yes, it's called okay. True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. And it's the autobiographical tale of, of this Indian kid who ends up being the only Indian in a high school except for the mascot. But Which is... My story. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> as I was writing it... Uh, this violent voice kept popping up, which had no place in the book. Mm. I, I just kept feeling this violence. And I, I don't. I think it came from my sons, who are nine and five, who for the last couple of years have keep asking me about the war in Iraq. You know, why are we wow. still fighting, Daddy? Why are we still fighting? Good question. Why are we huh? still fighting? And, and me trying and to answer that. Yeah. Uh, so I think that voice was me trying to answer that question. Of course, there is no answer. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so this other teen voice rose out. And at first it was a young adult novel, and I think it's been interpreted as a young adult novel because of the age of the narrator. Mm. But, you know, the subject matter is is nowhere near young adult status, as we were laughing beforehand. <laughs> there, there's a scene where he drops into a body of somebody who's worried about being anally raped by a rat. And we're laughing, you know. Here yes. come, well, not, yeah. Harry Potter and the anally raping rat. That's that's the next one. It's going to sell billions Stay of copies. Tuned, right. Stay tuned, yeah. Can't wait Starring, to see the film. Yes. Uh, so, Magic moments. Uh, so it's a, a teen narrator, but it's a teen narrator dropping into the body of adults with a adult concerns. Right. So it's a 15-year-old person looking at the world through the eyes of adults, mm -hmm. and that's what makes it not a young adult novel. Mm -hmm. uh, so so, and I wrote it, and he drops into the different time frames, and it's out in the world now. And, and I just started book tour, which has been very interesting, mm -hmm. because every book tour, the book itself, really colors the way you're looking at the world. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I'm the only one who does that. I don't know. But whatever book I have with me really changes what I'm looking at. And so because it's such a violent, despairing book, I've been yes. looking for little moments of grace. Uh, or, or, or I also, I'm really worried I'm going to die in a plane wreck on this book tour. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm always worried about that anyway. I hate flying. Mm. But, but I think the most hilarious thing possible would be for me to die in a plane crash promoting a book called Flight. I, I would just love to see the headlines. Part of me, part of the really sick, demented, self-destructive part of me thinks, I would love the headlines. Yeah. Uh, Go out in that glory. Yes, you, you know, Sherman Alexie dies on flight. Uh, but uh, uh, so I was flying into uh, Norfolk, Virginia on Sunday night, and the mm. bottom of that really heavy rain windstorm was right. right there in Virginia. So we got, it was one of the three worst flights of my life. So coming you're buffeted. In. And buffeted back and forth, dropping. I don't know how far you drop to make it feel like you're dropping, but we were dropping and uh, just terrified. And uh, across the aisle, I looked and there was another woman. There was a woman there who was absolutely terrified. You know, she was just gripping her armrests and, you know, tears were coming down. And, oh. and, and uh, uh, so I, I reached my hand out across the aisle and, and she took my hand, so we held hands oh. until we landed. And then as soon as we touched down, you know, we, we parted because oh, all of a sudden we were just embarrassed, right? Mortified by this. And, and back to being these regular people regular, who, with their own, very much their own concerns. And their own there. agendas and didn't right. even look at each other. Never even really? acknowledged each other because I, I, I couldn't even look. So Because of embarrassment? That's what uh, you Embarrassment and this sort of from? intimacy. Right. I mean, it was much more intimate than if we'd had sex in the bathroom. It really right. was. <laughs> I mean, you know, instead of a physical act, it was fear, right? Which yes. is Which is the most intimate emotion. Yes. And, and and uh, so 
I just ran, you know, out, out of the plane and ran down the thing and just got out of there. And did I, you take your your seat like you did in your poem Water? <laughs> Were you running with the, the flotation device? Yes. No. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I get to the to the. Uh, exit, the security exit where the guy meeting me is supposed to be and he's not there. Hmm. So I figure, ah, he thinks I checked my bags. I never check bags. So I went down to the baggage claim and I saw him. And it's always easy to find the guys who are picking me up from college because, you know, they're always wearing a tweed blazer. They always have ponytails, uh, John Lennon eyeglasses. Still, and, now. And it used to be Birkenstocks, but now it's uh, Keens. Oh. Keens are the new Birkenstock. Uh, so I saw him, and I walked up to him said hello, and we were talking a little bit. And, and, and then I looked over and saw the woman. Uh, mm, okay. And she was standing with a couple girls and a man, who I assume were her, her daughters family. and her husband. Mm -hmm. And she sees me, and then she says something to her husband, which I can't, I'm too far away, and he looks at me and he smiles and he waves. So, oh, that's, that's lovely then. Uh, you so know, that was the moment of bridging that. Yeah, the, the distance across people and boundaries and fear, and, and so... I've been waiting for those moments and looking mm -hmm. for those moments, and I've been writing about it. I don't know what I'm going to do with all this information, but in Norfolk, the windstorm the next day on Monday afternoon, I was walking around, and a woman in front of me, her hat blew off her head. Mm. And it was pinwheeling down the street, so I ran after it. And, and, and being a writer, even as I was running after it, I was thinking, I'm going to write a poem about this. <laughs> no. Oh, no. Everything's material. Yeah. You know, and then it reminded me of an argument my wife and I had before I left where she goes, can't anything in your life be private? So, right, so right. I'm dashing down the street after this hat, and I catch it, and I turn around, and I run back to her. And the streets are empty. But I bow and hand her the hat, you know. And I don't know oh. why I bowed. No, no, no American male has bowed in 40 years, but I bowed. Bring and back the bow. Oh, yeah, and I handed her her hat, and she just laughed, you know. And she goes, oh. that was fun. Uh, so. Meanwhile, you were puffing. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know? So in the midst of all this horrible, evil violence, I guess trying to find mm. little moments of grace. And they're always there. Uh, so... And, and this book, Flight, ends on a moment of grace. Uh, and, and I hope I've earned it. Some reviewers don't think I have. Some think it's sappy and saccharine. But, uh, you know, I, I hope, I, I think the sign of, of a healthy person or a hopeful person is you keep looking for those moments of grace. So in the midst yes. of promoting this really violent book, that uh, I'm, I'm looking for personal moments of grace. Oh, well, I'm, I'm sure they'll come to you because you are... So you have to be open to them, and you definitely are. Oh, not always. Uh, you know, I can be a bitter jerk, too. So, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe I'll fill up. I'll, I'll, I'll write about those, too. Yeah. What else gets me mad? Well, no, let's, before I get too saccharine, you know what really gets me mad is when the plane stops and, and people jump up immediately to get their bags. Oh, right, right. And you can be in row 37. But they're still Still jumping up and, and grabbing their yeah. bags and bopping you on the head. And I want to scream... We're all getting off the plane at, at exactly the same time. Because <laughs> right. Yeah. right now we still do the filing out thing. It isn't like quite the mad press forward, you know. Yeah, so, so still. You're, you're going to leave. You're going to be two steps ahead of me off the airplane, you know, row 37. I'm in row 38. Right. So uh, that gets me so mad. Uh, and, and our plane was a little delayed this morning out of, out of Norfolk. And there was a guy in a suit fuming. That we were delayed, and I was watching him going, "What are you so worried about? You know, mm. you know, if your meeting was this morning, you should have 
flew last night. You know, I, there's so many things you should be worried about. I, I wonder if those moments of grace will ever expand into you then talking to these people. Oh, um, and, I don't <laughs> and know. And seeing what happens See, afterwards. I'm as petty as anybody else because I kept thinking, man, dude, you got to worry about the fact that your belt doesn't match your shoes. <laughs> Good eye and fashion eye right there. Sherman Alexei's fashion tip for the Ann Arbor. That's the only fashion tip I have at all. That's all I'm capable of is matching my belt to my shoes. Well, I think it's brilliant. I'll remember it. I'll remember it. Um, well, well, Sherman, how do you feel? You mentioned that there's been the critics are saying the, these mixed things about your book. So, um, well... Well, let's just start off this way. When you when you were beginning, when you were a beginning writer, you thought you were you were going pre med, right? And yeah. then you you from your biography, I read that you you passed out a couple of times and thought you know in anatomy class and thought, well, maybe this isn't the right direction. Yeah. And you you happened into a creative writing poetry workshop, um, and. And then it seems like at age 23, your first book of poems was published by Hanging Loose Press, Bob Hershon's Hanging Loose Press. So success came quite, quite quickly. Well, it was Hanging Loose Press, which is a small press, even yes. in the small press world. I mean, it's yeah. been around since like the 60s. It's, right? been, it's the same age as me, actually, almost exactly. Oh. Hanging Loose Press was born in October 1966 as well, a couple weeks, a couple days before me. So, oh, uh, that's uh, wonderful, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, so it's it's a nice coincidence. Uh, but uh, it was a small press book of poems by a 20-something Indian kid from Washington State. You know, it was supposed to sell 300 copies, 199 to my mom, uh, <laughs> you know, who, by the way, still asks me why they don't rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so my next book is actually filled with poems that rhyme and formal poems. Is, so. it, is it for your mom? Is it, it for is, mom? The dedication, oh, wonderful. The, you know, the dedication <laughs> says for my mother, uh, mom, most of these rhyme. Yeah. So uh, that'll be nice. Uh, but uh, uh, so it was completely surprised. I got a front page review in the New York Times book review with a bunch of other native literature. And the reviewer, Jim Kincaid, just went on and on about me. So, you know, how... The editor decided to do this and picked up my little book of poems mm -hmm. to review. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I've asked him. You and don't he goes, know how it came about. Well, no, I asked Rich, the editor, and he yes. said, "I liked the cover." So, uh, and then that made him read it, and, and then, then that he made loved him read it, and he loved the poems, and then he knew he couldn't get the Times to review a first book of poems by from me by itself. Oh, so he put so it he in constructed a big review that would include me. Uh, so he really engineered it, and and uh, uh, Jim reviewed it so well. I mean, said some great things. I was I remember sitting at my job. I was a secretary at a high school exchange program in Spokane, and I ran the fax machine. <laughs> and Bob, my editor, faxed yes. the review to me, and it came out. And I looked, and my eyes went right to the phrase, uh, "Mr. Alexis is one of the major lyric voices of our time." You know, a first book of poems. You know, and, and that did it. Boom. Uh, it was like some strange movie. Uh, instantly, I started getting phone calls from editors and agents like crazy. Uh, all these famous agents you hear about were calling me. Uh, and they all terrified me. So uh, what, I guess, how did you how did you cope with that then? Uh, well, I didn't have a phone. <laughs> oh, 
Um, it it seems like I'm, it's uh, time for me to say that uh, we're we're coming back. I think we're going to take a break. Um, and uh, here we are at WCBN. Uh, WCBN. WCBN. 88.3 FM. On your commie radio dial. <laughs> uh, we'll be back in a moment. back here with Sherman Alexi. Um, Sherman is very accomplished in so many things, and right now he's agreed to read a poem uh, for us. I can't sing, though. <laughs> well, maybe we'll try to fade out okay. with the singing. <laughs> okay, or, or play a music. I can't play a musical instrument either. And nobody I voted no president I voted for in you know two terms has been elected. So I'm, maybe this. I'm time. a failure on that too. So. Uh, So I'm going to read a poem. It's called On the Second Anniversary of My Father's Death. A bird, too big to be a robin, but still shaped like a robin, so it might be a robin, alights on our deck and smashes its head against the clear glass. What kind of dumbass bird thinks it can pass through glass like a door? Amused, I keep score. Bird zero, glass four. Concussed, that bird learns a lesson from hurt and leaves, but returns the next day to smash against the same glass. How long can this last? How about six days? Until that bird's pain transforms into rage, till bird's rage becomes closer to humans, then becomes human. Maddest bird, my wife thinks that your crazed flight is meant to remind me of my father's death. But that metaphor breaks a week later when I phone home from a business trip to ask about the bird. It was gone for two days, my wife says, but then it came back and started smashing against the window again. And this time, it brought along a little friend. What little friend, I ask? 
A tiny bird, a sparrow, I think. Are they both smashing the glass? No, the little one just watches and sort of cheers on the big one. Come on, I said. No, really, my wife said. The little one squawks and tweets and flaps its wings, and I swear it sounds like it's laughing, like flying into a window is the funniest thing in the world. Well, it is funny, I said, but I don't think the birds realize it's funny. I know, I know, but it's funny in a not funny way, too. I don't know why, but for some reason I had this thought. So I called that huge bird by your father's name, and guess what happened? Absolutely nothing, I said. Well, yeah, almost nothing, but, but I swear that bird hesitated for a second and looked at me from the other side of the glass. No, he regarded me. And I know it's crazy to say this, but I think that bird might be your father. I think you've been smashing your head against the glass, I said. Yeah, maybe. But you know what else? I think this little bird is like one of your dad's old dead drinking buddies, and, and I'm worried your dad is going to bring home a big flock of his drinking buddies, his birds, and they're going to crap all over the house. And my wife and I laugh because her fears are surreal, hilarious, and valid. Oh, bird, too bird to be my father, but still drunk like my father, so you might be my father. I come home to find you gone, and I miss you, and am stunned by how much I am bothered by the doubts you have fathered. Bird, are you my father? Bird, you might be my father. Bird, you must be my father. Bird, you are my father. Father, fly home, fly home, fly home. But that metaphor breaks again. Two days later, as my wife and I sit on our deck and drink coffee, look, she says, there's your father. We watch that bird smash its head against our neighbor's upstairs window, then it flies down to smash against her kitchen window. I later learned that the bird has smashed its head against the window of the house across the street and two more houses down the street and the huge windows of the coffee shop on 34th and Union. If that bird is my father, then it is also father to every other child in this neighborhood. Ah, bird, which came first, your brain damage or the insistent need to crack your skull against the glass? Tell me, why did you come to our city, neighborhood, and house? I think that God delivered unto us this bird to remind us that life is finite and absurd. Thank you, Sherman. You're welcome. So, I've been finishing my readings with that one, so I like it. Yeah. You know? it's, it's... Although it seems strange to say that, right? You know, I like reading poems about my dead father. <laughs> right. Oh, I'm quite fond of it as well. <laughs> yes. We that so please, please let me read another one about my dead father. <laughs> right. I, I love to make my grief as public as possible. And, and my wife was just in my head again. Can't anything Can be, be private? private? I hear her too now. <laughs> yeah. So, well, the if the bird actually also reminds me of um, in flight when you have that inter that exchange between when Zitz comes back as his father. I hope that's not saying too much. I don't want to for people who are going to read the reading the book. Oh my soon. God! You just said Kevin Spacey's Kaiser Sose. <laughs> You ruined it all. Oh, no. <laughs> They'll never let me do radio again. Bruce Joe. Willis is a ghost. You've ruined it. <laughs> but, but anyway, in the book, there's this moment where um, the, the, the father um, is talk in Tacoma is talking to a, a businessman on the street who tells a story about a pet bird. Yeah, a pet bird who uh, uh, they've taught to sit on their shoulders and... Uh, 
has an amazing vocabulary, and the daughter's in love with the bird, and the father has the bird on his shoulder, and he's cooking pasta, and the bird flies into the pot and ends up dying, and it ends up being this story about being a bad father. And, and uh, uh, so I hadn't even thought of the connection there, but uh, that actually happened to friends of ours. Uh, their oh. bird flew off the dad's shoulder into the you know, uh, boiling water, and uh, uh, they made it to the emergency room, uh, but the bird didn't make it. But the bird didn't it. make it after so, that. No, so. Oh. Uh, but, you know, it was a story so sad and tragic and also hilarious at the same time. And, and uh, you know, I invented a very fictional version of it, but uh, it just seemed to me to be the kind of story that fit my book, the idea of flight. So, I mean, it's a carefully it constructed does. book mm. with the theme of flight uh, mm-hmm. that occurs. And, and, it's and that bird n- can't fly because it's a canary. Right. So, yes. And it's nouns and in its verb form of flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book does a lot of that. There's model airplanes. There's terrorists in airplanes. There's birds. And, and Zit, when he's leaving the foster homes. Running and, away. Yes. There's, uh, you know, cavalry soldiers fleeing, renegade cavalry soldiers fleeing their superior officers who are trying to kill them. There's, there's tr- flight away from committing acts of violence. So the concept of flight is everywhere in the book. So... And and the dream, sort of a dream state that accompanies inhabiting these different times, like See, there's, there's, there's that MFA again. <laughs> that, that concept never occurred to me. So the idea, of, you know, of the flights of fancy. So well, well, because and with the with the ghost dance, which um, uh, Justice, one of the characters, um, sort of uses to manipulate. Zits. Um, well, that can kind of maybe we can use that going. Um, how are how's movie? How are your movies these days? Spe- Filmmaking. Speaking like, of the, grounded. Yeah. Uh, oh no. <laughs> well. I mean, as people can probably tell by looking at Netflix, uh, I have two movies. One that was premiered in 1998 called Smoke Signals that Mm -hmm. made about $7 million in the United States, played in hundreds of theaters, won all sorts of awards, and everybody loves it. And then I made one in 2002 called The Business of Fancy Dancing that nobody saw, uh, that played in dozens of theaters and made... Uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars, and and uh, is is a weird little thing. And it's in our the Ann Arbor Library. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. Ah, good for Ann Arbor. Often uh, checked out. Ah, so uh, but I haven't been able to get another major film even close to being made. I've script doctored, which means I've worked on other people's films trying to mm-hmm. get them made. I've pursued my own projects, Indian themed and not, mm-hmm. and everything has crashed and burned. Uh, so I had given up. The last four months or so since oh. a project I was sure was going to get made uh, didn't, didn't happen. And, and, uh, but just last night, I get home from my reading and there's an email from my agent, my Hollywood agent, saying, so-and-so wants you to adapt to this book for a screenplay and they have this much money. So, you know, it's like the Godfather. It's every, try, every time I try to get out, <laughs> something's going to bring you back They in. pull me back in. So the Hollywood mafia has me again. So it's, it's the money, uh, you, you know. Mm. Nowhere else in my life am I a complete whore. Not really. But uh, when it comes to Hollywood, I'm a whore. So, you know, big checks, big attention. And, and the big thing is, is Smoke Signals, which is a small movie by any cinematic standards, you know. It made $7 million. That's small. You know, that mm. means about a million people saw it. But mm-hmm. in the book world, uh, a million people is enormous. That's, yes. And, and That's true. the attention Smoke Signals brought to my books uh, 
was enormous. So, you know, I make movies for the art form, certainly, but I also make them because you reach more people. Mm-hmm. And when you reach more people, they turn to your book. So, mm-hmm. you know, I make movies to help my book career. So, I see. Uh, there's a method here. There's a it's method. It's not just the Hollywood. There's a, there's a method to my horniness. And, and, uh, I wasn't saying it. <laughs> but you were thinking it, I could tell. So, uh, but also, you know, when you talk about movies, I mean, people love to talk about Native American literature and literature in general as being part of the oral tradition. It's really not, because when I work on my books, I type them, and I'm really, really quiet when I'm typing them. Mm-hmm. It's when you start performing uh, that they become part of the oral tradition. And mm-hmm. movies themselves are completely of the oral tradition. Uh, sitting in a theater watching a movie is like sitting around a campfire listening to somebody tell a story. So I love that feeling. And the most amazing moment of my career, at least one of them, was in Minnesota, Minneapolis, a few years ago. They screened smoke signals, mm-hmm. uh, and the projector sound kept going out, but there were enough Indians in the audience who had seen the movie enough times, they started filling in the dialogue. Oh. It became the Rocky Horror Indian Picture Show, <laughs> you know. Let's do the res warp again. And, and uh, uh, that's, that's wonderful. Though that must have been amazing. I mean, like, like being a rock star, I, I, yes, having people. I sing had your that songs. tiny little sense mm-hmm. of what it feels like to be Brian Adams, and everybody starts going. The summer you know, sixty. Yeah, <laughs> but little six string. Oh, at the five and dime. See, we did get some singing yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, and now you can tell why. I, yeah, I can't sing. So, but that feeling of having a few hundred people repeating something you wrote. Oh, I mean, it was amazing, and and. Uh, you know, visceral proof of, of what art can do and what your art can do, what my art can do. So I want that back. Uh, well, I hope it comes back to you, Sherman Alexi. all good things and many moments of grace. Um, thank you so much for being here today with us. That's our time. Uh, Sherman Alexi, um, his latest book, Flight, um, look for it at Shaman Drum and bookstores near you and all the other great bookstores in Ann Arbor. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Sherman. Thank you.